This podcast is an examination of the historical research of William Branham and his message cult following. William Branham was a minister in the gambling town of Jeffersonville, Indiana, just across the river from Louisville, Kentucky, as early as 1933. He came in contact with the Reverend Roy E. Davis, an official spokesperson for the 1915 Ku Klux Klan, and later Imperial Grand Dragon of the Ku Klux Klan. Davis introduced Branham to the Pentecostal faith and the art of faith healing, which would later be introduced into Branham's stage persona as he took his place among the evangelists in the post-World War II healing revival. Branham is credited by some as being a catalyst for the Latter Rain Movement and Jim Jones of People's Temple. This podcast is not sympathetic to the views of the Ku Klux Klan that William Branham held, but it is disturbing and warrants research. This podcast is an examination of that research. You can find more about this research and other topics on the website william-branham.org. Join us as we turn back the pages of time and examine the controversial issues of William Branham and his message. Today, I want to discuss Hebrews 6. This is a chapter that many of you are probably familiar with, and though it's a very strange read while you've been programmed with the teachings of William Marion Branham, many of these verses in the chapter are used to take a context, as he called it. But these are astounding if you read them in actual context for which they were written. William Branham particularly liked the verse that contained its end is to be burned. Many times, whenever he was speaking about demons, especially in his healing campaigns, William Branham would use this scripture. In fact, in a 1953 sermon entitled Demonology, Branham claimed that God himself showed him this verse. He says this, And the Lord came down in his mercy, and he showed me. Here's where it was. It has to be scriptural first. He said, pick up your Bible. And I picked up my Bible. And I guess I held that Bible for 10 minutes without anybody, any more word coming. I waited for just a few minutes, and I heard him again say, turn to Hebrews 6 and start reading. And I did. And when it came down, there where he said it, the rain cometh oft upon the earth to water it and prepare it to dress it for widgets, and then he breaks, but the thorns and the thistles, which is nigh unto rejection, whose end is to be burned. And I caught it right there. I thought, there it is. Thanks be to God. There it is. See? William Branham also liked the third verse, speaking about those who fell away never to return. In fact, he preached an entire sermon with this title, Hebrews chapter 6, 3. You see, William Branham taught that each age had just a little truth. Throughout the church ages and their dates that he copied from Clarence Larkin, Branham taught that each age had just a little truth, but the seventh age messenger would restore all things to the foundation that was laid by the prophets of old. He often lined up the ones that he felt were the trail of the gospel and spoke their names with almost a little jingle behind them. In 1964 is an example. He says this, Down through the years, Luther, Wesley, Martin Luther, all, Sankey, Finney, 
John Smith, Knox, stumbled at it. But what's it to be done in these last days? What is it to reveal, bring forth? What's Malachi 4 to do? To turn back the people from that stumbling block, to break down the traditions, to reveal the bread with the Shekinah glory, watch it ripen and produce just exactly what it said it would. Oh my, the showbread for this age. To the denomination, it's a stumbling block, a bunch of fanatics. But to we who believe, but now, as Revelations 10 has promised, all the mysteries of God that's been hid all through the ages, through all them years, would be ripened, brought forth in the age of this seventh angel's message. Is that right? Interestingly, when you read all of these verses in context, Paul actually seems to be preaching against those that William Branham tried to expand on the simple gospel of Jesus Christ and those like him. Paul's proclamation of the gospel is really summed up in this one single statement that is repeated throughout all of Paul's works. Paul says this, For it is by grace are you saved, and it's through faith, and that not of yourself. It is the gift of God. Now let's read Hebrews chapter 6 to see the real meaning of all of these many one-liners that William Branham pulls out of this chapter and see if they align with Paul's original intention. Paul says this, Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God. You see, just like the Ephesians, Paul spoke against those that tried to make themselves righteous by works, by the things that they did. Paul called these dead works, and basically, he just called those who do this immature. Let's continue. Paul says, and instructions of washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. This we will all do if God permits. Now, it's interesting that he speaks about washings. Most cult churches today still practice what they call foot washing, and there's no problem with it. But it has become a cold formal ritual, and it's absolutely nothing like the original intentions of that scripture. You see, Christ, by example, was showing his disciples that they should humble themselves. They should become a servant for others. The servants were the ones who washed the sand of the desert off of their feet. But in these modern days, we have very little to wash off with the exception of odor from smelly socks. Paul says that these things we can do if God permits, but they are works. And people seem to have stumbled in works and not grown on into maturity of grace. Let's continue. Paul says, for it is impossible, in the case of those who have once been enlightened, to have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God, and the powers of the age to come, and then fallen away, to restore them to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm, 
and lifting him up to contempt. Now, this is quite honestly the most powerful statement in the entire chapter. That's likely the reason Branham quoted this so often. But, combined with the beginning of the chapter, we find that Paul is speaking to those who have turned away from grace. Salvation simply by faith in Jesus Christ, they think is not enough, and have decided there's a better way. Paul is speaking against those who did doctrines of holiness and add them on top of the basic gospel of Jesus Christ. Is this a different gospel? Many cult followers have fallen what the gospel is, but they've forgotten what it really means. So, I think it's important that we describe the Bible's description of the gospel. The word gospel means good news. The gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, is the good news that God sent his only son to earth, Jesus Christ, and Jesus lived a perfect life on the cross for our sins. He conquered death, hell, and the grave, and he rose up again so that we might rise with him. Those who believe in this gospel have eternal salvation by the grace, by the unmerited favor, through faith in Jesus Christ and his plan of salvation. Not works. Paul says this, For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful for those whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless, and near to being cursed, its end is to be burned. So we find what he's saying when you read this in context is those who do not accept this elementary plan of salvation, those who try to add doctrines of works on top of it, Paul says they're worthless. This is very harsh, and Paul realizes this. Next he says, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. You see, the Jews were hung up on works. Paul knew it. And he knew that, there, that he was speaking harshly. But he told them that God was not an unjust God. He would not overlook their devo devotion to these works and be unmerciful, but According to Paul, there was no need for them. Paul reminded the people of the covenant that God made with Abraham. He said, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For the people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes... An oath is final for confirmation. Think of that. All their disputes. 
So when God des desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, for which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might find strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. So, I read this and the first question that comes to my mind is, should our anchor be in a messenger that paved the way before us with dead works? Or should it be in Christ? Let's see what Paul says. He ends the chapter with this. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into an inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Having became a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, I chose Christ as my high priest, not William Branham. So I'm going to end you with this question. Which did you choose? 